I can't hear you. No, I can't hear you at all. Can you hear me? Good morning, Robert. Can you hear us? Todd, can you hear me now? We can. Great. I don't know what happened. That system Hold changed. On. I can hear. In focus. All right. Brian, I can't hear. You can't hear me? Robert, you've got us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? All right, stand by. I can't hear. All right, let's try this now. Robert, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? All right, we've got you. This is a little pregame. We, uh, being a new platform, we just get started a little early and deal with some tech issues. So if you're listening live already, just stand by. We'll be starting the show in about three and a half minutes. Todd? Absolutely. Hey, Robert. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing good. Good to see you again. Yeah. So, so you got the, I got the book out front. Uh, for you. How awesome! And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to do that. Um, hey, hey, Brian, I I I don't see it in Facebook. If this if that's an issue. Okay. All right. No worries. Um. Yeah. So. It's uh. 
exciting stuff here. I so a couple questions. Um, sure. What's it's kind of personal. So, are you doing anything special for this month for uh, for the for the Gay Pride Month? Um, yeah, Key West had our first Pride forty years ago. In fact, we had the big flag that went from the the Gulf to the Atlantic that was then you know, cut up and auctioned off. So um, we've already had some fundraising events and some awareness events this week, and we've got some more stuff all the way through the weekend. Uh, but it's also Key West, which means, you know, you have to be flexible. I think we have a couple of days of some pretty heavy rain coming. So um, fortunately, the major venues in Key West are all indoors, and fortunately, they all have bars. So it becomes a fun time. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. And the... Uh... To stay dry during the stay dry when you're getting wet, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they you don't you never run out of water at the grocery store. Uh, what what runs out is a vodka. So, <laughs> you know, I haven't been here long enough to have that affliction, but uh, I know it is a is a challenge sometimes. But no, it's a it's a, it's a great celebration, um, and and you know, part of the celebration is also remembering there's still a lot of people who who don't have the same rights and. Um, be great as we become more inclusive to get to a point where everyone can be proud of who they are and we we don't have any more groups that feel they've been uh, marginalized yeah it's it's unfortunate throughout the world there's there's still a lot of groups that you see um being treated differently that's so true and especially in parts of the world where it's not just a crime but it's a death sentence if you get caught so it's terrible yeah, I am. Um, and I'm not in a job that's you find. I don't think a lot of people typically um, expect to find a gay man here. In fact, I've I've given interviews and I think the hosts have just about stopped in their tracks when I, I mentioned a husband or before we married, <laughs> I had a boyfriend. And they're like, so you're gay. And I go, well, well, if you're if you're using a descriptive adjective, then yes, since I, I have a husband that would classify me as gay. <laughs> well. I'm glad that we, all right. Oh, we're ready to go and uh, we'll get packed up. So, all right, Brian. Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this world. And I, I'm really excited to have um, Robert A. Jensen um, on the show today, who is the author of a book uh, called Personal Effects, which really dives into what it is, what we do um, in the field of emergency management, um, in the recovery. And it gets a little bit deeper into some stuff I've never really put in, put ton of of thought into um but yet it's it's just as important if not maybe even more so in the recovery um after disaster both natural and man-made robert welcome to the show you're in yeah can we good yep we're good yeah yeah thank you i'm excited to to join you here you have a great program so we we talked earlier in in the pre call and I, I was I was telling people that um, during the pre call I was so excited to have you on because 
normally they take like 15 minutes. We just kind of go through tech, some technology and we got some really great conversation and it lasted an hour, um, which says a lot about the, your knowledge on, on the subject, not just in the book that you wrote, but just in, in, in the time that you put in uh, in this field. Um, how, so how did you get into doing this job? I mean, it's, it's a kind of a weird pathway to the career field. Yeah, it's, it's not a, it's, um, I, there are lots of degree programs now for emergency management, which is, you know, you've, you've got a very good history in the field also that, you know, didn't exist. I'm more specialized into dealing with events that are considered mass fatalities. So there's really not a program or, or a educational track. I just happen to fall into it, either being in the wrong place at the, the wrong time or the right place at the, the right time. But my degree was in criminology and back in the 80s when I was going to school and I graduated in 1988, you know, there was one forensics class, a lab, and Quincy was the forensics TV show. And that's, <laughs> you know, the patrolman carried the uh, fingerprint powder and we looked for tire marks and shoe prints. And then uh, medical examiners really came into their own, started learning that there was a lot to learn from the scene, a lot to learn from a recovery of a human remains. But the focus was on what we could learn as an investigation, not what we do with the information as far as taking care of the families. And so when I was in the Army and doing what we called mortuary affairs, um, I was commanding the only, only mortuary unit at the time when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred. And that was a big event for the United States. You know, 168 people were killed. And it was a shock to go and watch. And again, there were so many federal agencies involved and there was great effort by the medical examiner, Fred Jordan in Oklahoma to, to really focus on the families. And uh, you had the president of the United States involved, but there was not really a, a formal system. And so having just, I guess, being in the right place at the right time, saw, wow, we can really do some things to use this information, use these skills that we're now learning, this focus, but make it for the people who matter, and that's the people who are left behind. We, we can't bring back the dead, and we can't uninjure people. We owe a name to the, to the living and the dead, and we owe dignity to the living and the dead. I just, you know, focus on the dead. And then we owe a path forward or some truth, transparency, and kind of information on what to expect for the families. Because for the families in these events, life is never the same. And it's, it's not like it is on TV where sometimes we get recoveries very quickly and then everything just goes away. We're involved in some of these events for years. As a long answer to a short question, sorry. No, no, absolutely, and that that deserves a long answer, because it's it's way more complicated than what we think. Like when we talk about disaster from emergency management, and even on on the scene, you know, train wreck or whatever, right? Because those are some of the things we for, we do for well for real life too, but for drills. Yeah. And we go, okay, set up your triage, and over here in the corner, uh, we're gonna set the morgue, and and you start your book off talking about Oklahoma, um, city bombing, and you get to the scene and there's a church where they basically set up the morgue and you state in there that it wasn't like it was chosen for any particular reason outside of the fact that it was close. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then I, I want to read this 
directly because just this is one of these things that you, this you, the book starts off this way and it's profound. It, it truly is. And and you say Oklahoma City taught me early an important lesson about sudden large scale catastrophes. Don't expect wisdom at the moment of death. Don't expect anyone to know where they're going or even what they're doing. <clears throat> Authority figures, first responders, loved ones, and sadly, even the executive branch of the government. So it really captures the chaos uh, of an event like Oklahoma City bombing or 9-11 or any other of these, these large events. Um, what does that mean to you when, when you say those words? Well, I, it, you know, it takes me, it takes me right back and I could, I can, in my head right now, I can, you know, remember walking through the basement, which is how we went into the building sometimes or through the pit and you have the incessant beeping of the, um, you know, the bobcats and the, the heavy equipment as they back up and the jackhammers and the, at night, the, the yellow lights, the arc lights. What I was writing about there was uh, Oklahoma is a great example because that was a federal building. So that gave the federal government jurisdiction. Death in almost all cases is a state function because there is no federal medical examiner. The armed forces has a medical examiner, but then who takes control? And in this case, because there were so many different agencies, each agency wanted to have a role. They wanted to recover their missing people or their dead. And then there were civilians, of course. There was the daycare center. There's the courts. And it's trying to help everyone remember that we don't have we, – we have a whole bunch of individuals. And beyond each of those individuals, we have a whole bunch of family members and friends. And they don't care if the back of my jacket says U.S. Army or FBI or ATF or OCME or fire department. We're a system. And the only thing they care is that that system works together to safely recover their loved ones, identify them and return them and then tell them what happened. And you have politics, unfortunately, because people get afraid. Governments fall. Mass fatalities cause governments to fall. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't don't accept a poor response. And so it becomes a challenge because you see this chaos and the goal is to to bring order is to say, look, we've got we've got to manage a recovery. We've got to make it safe. We can't. It's a triangle. Also, I use and later in the book, I describe mass fatalities. The response is a triangle. You have one point, which is the dead. So again, taking care of the the dignity and deceased and and being able to identify them. And you're absolutely right in the drills. And every drill everyone does, when somebody is marked as deceased, they get put in a tent or corner that says morgue. And then that's the end of the exercise. There's never the family assistance. There's never the the exercising, the, the processes after that, because I think they scare people. But back to the triangle. So you have one point, which is the deceased. You have a second point, which is the the living. And the living are the family members. The living is also the community that's affected. And the the living might be a community that people forget about. So when we had TWA 800, for example, or a group of um, school children going to France, well, that school just lost a whole block of students. Hmm. And, And it's not going to be the same for them. And then, of course, there's the investigation. And all three of those require equal care, but they sometimes conflict with each other. In Lockerbie, uh, you know, bodies were unfortunately had had dispersed from the wreckage site because of the bomb going off and then the plane breaking up. And if you just go in to recover the bodies very quickly, you may be stepping on that microchip 
that led to the identification, the conviction of the Libyan bombers. So you have to explain to families and you have to say, I can't recover everyone quickly. What I can do is cover. What I can do is bring religious leaders, all the different religions. And what I can do is explain. Families don't get so mad about the event because they're human and humans make mistakes. And from the law enforcement side, we're not going to prevent every terrorism. They only have to get lucky once. We have to get lucky every single time, and that's not possible. And we can't prevent hurricanes or earthquakes. So the problem is that sometimes governments and responders will come in and they want to focus on the events that that have occurred. Well, the people who are directly affected want to focus on what's next. Mm. And so I, I tell it, you can't defuse a bomb that's exploded. Don't try. Deal with the consequences. So you mentioned the word uh, family assistance center, which I think is, is a, I tell my friend all the time that words matter. And I think that's critical because, you know, we hear the term family reunification center, um, but there's a lot of times there isn't reunification going on. And family assistance center is, is probably the, the better way to, to, to use that term. Um, well, actually, we, we use three terms and they're different. Family mm-hmm. assistance centers different than reunification and different than a family information center. All three are very distinct and different. But again, it's such a small area in emergency management that people are like, huh? But we have we have lessons learned, if you will, from some large events, right? Um, Sandy Hook, uh, for instance, um, the shooting in, in Vegas uh, with that, that processing was just, uh, I've talked to some people that were there and it was just a, an, ama- an amazing amount of, of work and effort and time that the city put into the family assistance and that's a whole different story, but um, there's something that's worth looking at too, by the way. Um, you know, and, and so I was, I was involved with, with a, a shooting um, where a guy went into a beauty salon and, um, and shot, um, killed eight people, shot nine. And we had a family assistance center um, as well because we only had one survivor of that uh, event, you know, and, and so you're right. Pro- helping people, go through that process and, and having a, a plan set in place, I think is, is critical. Do you see a, in your experience, has there been a lack of, of emergency management and public agencies having a great plan for their assistance center or for their family unification or family information centers? Because it seems to be, from what I understand, pretty ad hoc. Oh, Absolutely. And I, and I want to give a shout out to Clark County, and he just retired. John Feudenberg was the coroner for Clark County, and he was um, head of the, the Coroners Association for the U.S. and has been a big, big advocate. And he was there when, the when unfortunately, we had the, the shooting in, in Vegas. And so they were well prepared because he's, he makes it part of his focus and part of the emergency management focus for what happens after the event. And and that's why I think you saw the what I call the success and the, the response. I, I think a lot of emergency management is on prevention and a lot of emergency management is on immediate response. And there's very little on what I call consequence management. And that's because it involves so many different agencies who don't necessarily get involved in the response. But when we have a mass fatality, registrars, trying to get death certificates, 
all that stuff becomes very important and it's all tied together. And you saw when we had the shooting in Indianapolis at the FedEx facility, how long it took, not only for the recovery of the remains, but information to get to families. Hmm. And here's the thing, you've been a responder. I, you know, when I was a policeman, we get a 911 call and boy, if I got lucky, I could be there in two or three minutes, something that should have taken me 10, but I just hit every light and I had traffic clear. But what's the first thing the person says to you when you get there? What took you so long? So for you, as a responder, you look at your clock, it's noon. 12 hours later, or five, you think it's five minutes later, and it's 12 hours. It's midnight. You're like, where'd my day go? Right. For a family member, they look at their watch at noon, and hours seem like minutes. And so this is why it's so important to understand all the the physiological and physical responses that the, not the, not the shooting victims or the the bombing victims, but the, the family members go through as they're now trying to focus on what's important to them. So yes, unfortunately in the United States and worldwide, there is a lack of really good exercises and training on what to do once the fire is put out or once the smoke is cleared, or once the buildings have start have stopped shaking, or the, the shooter is deceased or in custody. And, and that's what I did for years. I, I spent time on what I call the consequence management. So kind of putting some advice out there for people, when we're doing exercises, and we tend to train from, from zero hour to like three hours in or whatever, or if we, and we maybe yeah. fast forward a little bit to shift change, right? It's a 12 hour shift. Um, I've been involved in a couple of exercises where we started three days in, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, but even in that, we didn't really, we may have said, oh, yeah, we're going to order DMORG up from the federal government or something like that. And we just kind of go, okay, yeah. we did our job. Like, like, what can we do to actually add more to that that realistic and, and really exercises what it means to go through that recovery process with someone like you? Don't exercise the event. I, I mean, you need to because we need to. But do an exercise that's two weeks in, that's a month in. And DMORT's a great example. The expectation Katrina was they'd go in and do recoveries. Till somebody said, no, they're federal. We're not going into to private residences. And then, well, we'll bring in the Army because the Army did Oklahoma. I absolutely was in Oklahoma, but Oklahoma was a federal building, so there was jurisdiction. Exercise things that, and you don't have to start with the nuclear bomb, hurricane, and earthquake on the same day. Start something small and then say, walk through. Where would we collect the information that we're going to use for identification? How long is that going to take to collect that information from the families? And then where are we going to do the exam on the human remains? And then who's going to do that? Who's going to issue the death certificates? Are the families going to be there during this week or month process? And some of these air crashes that we do, it's 14 to 16 months to get the identification because unfortunately we don't have people there intact. We have fragmented remains, hundreds of them. And it can take a month just to, as we go through the scene, and I I use the word process, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but as we go through to examine each piece of tissue, because I don't know if that single piece of tissue 
is all I'm going to get to identify an account for one person. Hmm. What do we do with all the personal effects? The hundreds or thousands of them that may be there. So I'd love to see jurisdictions say, we're not going to exercise the event. The event's over. Now we're 30 days into it. Where should we be? What's our workload? And the other key piece is what are we doing to manage the responders for critical incident stress? Because as we see in Oklahoma, and as I, I wrote about for USA Today on Surfside, I hope Surfside's over. I hope we're not going to see any more fatalities. And I hoped when Oklahoma was over, we wouldn't see any more fatalities. But unfortunately, in Oklahoma, we did years later because of the suicides from the responders. And right now, that's a big issue in this field. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, um, I mean, I've had friends um, who have uh, committed suicide, um, military and, and law enforcement friends, um, just due to the trauma that we have seen over the years. And um, when, through my personal experience, when I went through that um, active shooter response, um, they made us go through, check through, um, psych for before we left so we had counseling um on scene and then we had a group counseling and they sent us individual counseling um for a couple weeks after afterwards and um i mean i think it worked a bit you know um i i, I could tell you i still had some residual from it um and i have friends that have residual from it still um you, you know the shooting that happened uh, i'm over in texas um i have purposely kept myself distance from it um uh, just because of, of that um, what, how, how do we help, uh, process this is a true word, right? It's a clinical word, but it, it, it is what it is. How do we help people process through that experience, both responders and also the family members too? Well, two different systems. So the families, um, you want to help them first by making it easier because you can't undo the event. The best you can do as a responder is zero which is hard, which is, is, and I'll get back to that in a minute on the effect on the responders. I, I go in with no illusions. I'm not going in to save lives because when I'm called in, it's because there aren't, aren't lives to save. There's only the dead. Responders are trained to save lives. So when we use them for recovery of the deceased, it, it can create a conflict. But for the families, it's telling them what to expect so that they can start to make a plan and have some control. Because the one thing they don't get is control. They didn't get a chance to say goodbye. They may not even get a chance to have a funeral because there may not be a recovery. Or their grief may be hijacked by this public sense of memorialization and all these events that are good for some but not good for others. Right. And that's about making sure they have access to that counseling long term. And then every photographer who puts a picture on a headline Every TV show that talks about this, do they do it in a way that is respectful and they do it in a way that doesn't revisit an image? And, and I think it was time after the Northridge earthquake put the, um, the motor officer, the highway, California Highway Patrolman that was killed as a motor officer. And a family knows who that is. They're going to know who that is. So whenever they see that picture, it will always be their grief being made public. And so that's what we have to do to help the families. For the responders, it's pre-screening. We used to try to really screen people and then make sure people were in the right job, whether it's the morgue. And some people in the morgue are great in the morgue, 
Some people in family assistance are great in family assistance, but they can't do the other job. <laughs> and then it's when you you limit exposure, we would, for the most part, try to keep people no more than two or three weeks maximum. And then it's follow-up. It's here's what to expect when you get home. And then here's the follow-up when you get home. And then it's who needs a little more follow-up because this doesn't go away. And, you know, like you or for me as an individual, I, we sold the company at the end of last year, my husband and I. And so now I'm retiring. And for me, one of the hardest things is things that bother most people don't bother me and vice versa. So when I ran the company and, you know, people come in, oh, there's a problem. Maybe it was an accounting issue or there's a, you know, an HR issue or a supply issue or, you know, some of the building, I, you know, come in, oh, we have this problem. I'm like, well, how many people died? None. Well, that's not a problem to me. Right. It's not that I don't take it seriously, but it could be fixed. Because the sun still comes up every day and it's a great day. So things like that, it's like, okay, yeah, don't worry about it. You missed a fight. Okay, you missed a fight. Getting stressed about it and angry it isn't going to solve anything. It's just going to raise your blood pressure. Right. But coming to live in a normal world can be difficult. And so it's really important to tell people what to expect as responders and how to manage that. Your spouse at home, when the washing machine breaks, is really important to them. Or, you know, the plumber didn't show up. You, having just come from the tsunami that killed, you know, 250,000 people, that's probably not going to be a big deal. But they won't have your reference. Yeah. So they're not going to understand. And and people are going to either want to talk about it or not talk about it. And we have what I call the, you know, the hero, zero to hero in 60 seconds. Right. Everyone wants to talk to you, but then the next big event happens. So it's making sure that you can stay grounded. So I, I think I answered the question, but I'm not sure. I think so too. Yeah, I remember I, I was at a, a at a, an emergency dealing with some stuff, and um, I was like, you know, two o'clock in the morning or whatever, and my wife calls me. She's like, "Are you going to be home to take the trash out?" <laughs> right? And I'm like, "Really? You know?" I'm like, I, "I'm in the middle of this crap storm, and you want to know if I'm going to be home to take the?" And, and so I I kind of was you know, rude to her and I, I had to apologize, but you're right. There's a disconnect, right? They, they see this as a, as a priority where we're in the midst of something that we, you know, so uh, I think sometimes as, as a responder, uh, you have to take into consideration what's, what your, what your spouse is going through is. Um, and, and I, 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 I tell that story a lot because to new people specifically, because um, they don't know, right. They just think that you're at work. Um, they, they don't, they don't, necessarily know what you're going through and they don't mean anything by it they're just asking the questions that are important to them at that time absolutely and sometimes there's another agenda it might have been your wife just wanting to check up are you okay because i heard something's going on and now i'm you know i'm for family members you know they hear the siren they hear uh, footsteps and and i think back to some of the times i've had to notify families that weren't expecting it and some families, I think, knew because they, they would, you know, hide the curtains or close because they didn't, if they didn't talk to you, it wasn't real. Right. And I go back to, um, yeah, that's Oklahoma City. And um, we'd recovered, uh, I think, the last child, not from daycare, but she'd been with her mom in Social Security. And the, the local team who'd been there from, you know, hour, minute one, we'd been there like a day or two days later. Um I had enough. It's like, go home. I'll, you know, I'll take care of her. 
And so you're in this church and, and we, we, we bring the deceased from the, the Murrow building into this church where we try to remove the personal effects so there's no further damage and, and start to get a tentative ID and then place them into a human remains pouch to go to the morgue. And um, I, back then, of course, the cell phones were these huge bricks, you know, big. <laughs> And um, I, I had a, a wife at the time versus you know, my husband now. And um, with my daughter, who's probably very close in age to um, th- this little girl on the table. And she calls and says, oh, you know, your, your, your daughter wants to talk to you. And it's like, wow. Right? You know, she has no idea. She knows I'm in Oklahoma. She knows I'm at the bombing, but doesn't know specifically where I'm at or that I'm in a morgue with, you know, another child. And you're going, well, why isn't she going home? Because, right. you know, one madman decided to detonate a bomb for his perceived wrongdoings of the world. And so, yeah, responders have to give. You have to give your families a break. You have to, you have to tell them that you're going to be different. And we tell responders, when you go to an event, you're never going to come home the same person. No. Um, I share the story again. Um, it's when we're going through that stuff, one of the guys stands up and talks about pebbles in the backpack, you know, yeah. and every single time that you go on a call, you're throwing that pebble, uh, you know, in the backpack and eventually that, that gets heavy, you know? And so uh, I, I think sometimes we have to take each other and take care of each other. And sometimes take a few of those pebbles out of your, out of your buddy's backpack and, and uh, hold on to him for him while he's trying to, trying to get up because uh, it, it, it does weigh down after many years of doing this. Yeah, and everyone has a breaking point. And, we, you know, we've had team members and, and people. You go, okay, I think it's time. You're, you're done. Stop. And you have to do it in a way that doesn't make somebody feel like they're a failure because they're not. Right. They're absolutely not a failure. It's you've carried that backpack long enough. It's time for the next generation. It's time to share that load. And it's like in the Army, you know, carrying the machine gun. It's heavy. So you share it sometimes. Right. You, you know, that being said, too, is, is I know people process things differently. And every event, and they say that there's also a term in the military that said, um, every battle, even though you're with your, your team, it's an individual battle, right? Because you're processing it differently. And then you talk about kids. Um, I used to be able to run on, on baby calls, if you will, kid calls. And I would, and like everybody else, we get a little more amped up. Um, but it wasn't until I had my first uh, that when I went on the call, I was like, whoa, this really impacts me completely different from when I was before child, you know? Uh, and uh, I think we, we, we changed over the years as we get older, um, how we process things differently mentally. Um, do you feel the same with, with your line of work as well? Well, I, and I've been doing this for a long time and I've been to two events that in a matter of minutes have killed close to a quarter of a million people. And the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee um, that was the 2010 Haitian earthquake, just probably, I think, about 230,000. And the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami that, you know, hit multiple countries. Yeah. And I, I don't count the number of plane crashes, I don't know, 40 or 50 and bombings and fires. So I've been doing this for a long time. Um, and it's one I know most of my life. So, again, it's hard to have a reference. I. Always am careful, though, to remember that, and, and people will say, well, what's the worst thing you've ever been to? Well, 
it doesn't matter because for each family member, it doesn't matter whether there was one or 250,000, each family was affected. And for that family, they were all bad. Yeah. And, and that's who we're there for. And that's who we try to take care of. And so that was the focus. Dead or gone. I, I can't bring them back. You know, I mean, God, what a great power if you could injure somebody or bring back the dead. What I hope we can do is make it easier for those that survive. I hope we can share lessons so that people don't make some of the mistakes going forward. In some cases, I hope we can prevent things. And, and by that, I talk about when I was in Bosnia in 95, we, we didn't want to address the mass graves. It wasn't until 99 or 2000 when, you know, the world said, well, you know, we have quite a lot of people who are missing and they're in these mass graves and we need to disinter them and identify people and give them a name and return them to their families. So hopefully that anger doesn't stay. Mm. And we're, you know, 40 years later back in a, you know, in a, in a brutal civil war or conflict zone. And that's why I was so in, in, happy to see that in the Ukraine right now, there's forensics teams recovering the, the mass graves and I hope collecting information for, for the war graves. So it's not just to take care of the immediate family. I hope some of it is for prevention. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I, I, I don't know if you, I kind of whispered it, but when people ask that question, what's the worst thing you want ever want to respond to? I, I really, there's not very many things I despise in the world. And that's just one of those things. I just hate that question. I really do. Well, I, I think again, it comes from a place of, not knowing and and journalists, you know, there's there's a lot of great journalists and and you have to have the media because if it's not photographed, if it's not shared, it didn't occur. Right. But there's also those that are for sensationalism, and that's the the ones that and and you know events we get, you know, fifty phone calls. Oh, we want to interview you, and so we we kind of have a system that we go through and say, yeah, who am I going to share information? Katrina, we had a CNN wanted to follow our recovery teams. And we were working at that time for either the federal government or when we stopped with the federal and went to the state, um, you know, they had to approve it. And I think it took a lawsuit, but I, and for me with the team, it's like, great. I, I don't care if you come, but here's the ground rules. If you show us going into a house and recovering a deceased, that family may not know that their loved one is deceased and they shouldn't hear that from you. Yeah. And so film streets, film the vans. Just think about if you were a family member, what could I learn? Could I learn the process and then would I feel good about it? Or am I learning about the individual? If you want to show the process, more power to you. Share. Don't it's it's nothing to to be afraid of. But again, it's education. Yeah, that is the worst way for somebody to find out that their loved one has passed is, is through through media. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Last question, because we're getting we're getting close here to the end. Um, what? Do you, okay, this is my opinion, and and I'll, and I'll formulate it into a question here. So I, I really believe that disaster recovery, if done poorly, is what people complain about more than the response. And I think they're more forgiving on the response side. You know, said, oh, the 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 people did their best, their job. They could do what they did. The guys in the helicopters and the boats and stuff like this did their best. But it's on the recovery. If we fail there, um, it's where people get upset. Do you do you agree with that, or am I off base on that? No, hundred percent. What I was, I think I alluded to it earlier. People aren't going to judge you by the event because, again, people know humans make mistakes. 
we're going to have aviation accidents because of a pilot or mechanical or whatever. We're going to have things we can't prevent because a bad guy is going to get lucky at some time. I tell CEOs and I tell, um, and we've done studies in the stock market. So you can have a financial impact or a reputational value for a government. You're not judged on the event. You're judged on how you respond. And your response starts the minute it occurs. And from a business standpoint, that means you as a CEO, you get up on that stage and you say you're sorry. And the greatest example, that's Alaska Airlines. Happened out of your neck of the woods in, you know, in 2000, California, off Port Wanimi. Mm -hmm. When the MB-80 went down and killed 88 people. 100% preventable accident because of bad maintenance. And the CEO got to the Family Assistance Center and I said, you know, I was there. And it's like, here's, here's the things. And you can see in the audience, the family members, the reaction the minute they say, I'm sorry. And here's what I can do going forward. Because you're addressing the people who have to go forward. You're not addressing the people who can't go forward because they're deceased. So absolutely, the, the best thing you can do is, okay, it's happened. We got to solve and learn lessons. But how do we go forward? Grenfell Fire in the United Kingdom is another great example. 71 people died in that tower fire. And the response was was not great um, because of their policies and procedures and, and experience. But the management by the council for taking care of the families was absolutely atrocious. And it was an opportunity to turn an event around. And, and they didn't. They did a horrible right. job. A lot of lessons learned um, here, and I, I this goes right here, and I love this part. Well, recovering the dead teaches about carrying me about caring for the living, and I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is what we can put out take out of this is what we do is caring for the living um, as we're helping them uh, through their grieving process and being the first contact with them, and I think it's important. Robert, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been a pleasure. How can people find your book? Uh, you're welcome. Well, I, I'm a big publisher. I'll hate when I say I'm a big fan of the libraries. There's, you know, you can get it at the libraries, but it's otherwise it's, you know, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, all the booksellers. It's on uh, the, the e-readers, the Kindles or the Audibles. Um, so basically wherever you can, can get books. And, you know, Todd, you reach a lot of emergency managers. And so I am. I'm happy if you guys have groups or if you've got an emergency manager that wants to have a, a Zoom link for 10 or 15 minutes, um, you know, find me and I'm, I'm happy to, to again, I, I'd like people to learn lessons the easy way because when you learn them the hard way, it's not just you that pays the cost, it's the families. And there's, there's nothing new. There's nothing that's unpredictable. Um, sadly, you've probably seen, to, seen it or been to it or know about it. And so take the time and, and make it a little bit easier on yourselves. Absolutely. And everybody, his, Robert's contact information is in the show notes. Um, so if you're driving down the road or your pencil's not sharp, no fret, just go to the show notes and click the link and, and reach out to Robert. Robert, again, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, on this topic. It's a fascinating topic to me because, um, you know, we, at the end of the day, uh, when we recover, it's total recovery until everybody is is uh, reunited in one way or another with their family. And this is what Robert has been doing for a long time. Um, well, that being said, thank you again. Thank you for being here with us. Until next time, stay safe and stay hydrated. 
<laughs> you might want to call Robert. Yeah. <laughs>